Um, I'd like us just to begin. Let's, we're going to read John uh, chapter 10, verses 22 through 42, um, uh, so that we're all reading the same words I'm going to read off of the screen for us. Uh, and let's just begin with the word for today. Uh, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained, and many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Now, I don't know how you respond to a passage like this, but for me, reading through it, I have lots of questions, like, what's going on here? <laughs> I, Jesus, people ask Jesus questions, and Jesus gives answers, and I can't make head or tails of why Jesus gives the answer he gives to a certain question. Um, what's the Feast of Dedication? Why are they confused about Christ? Why does Jesus give opaque answers? Why do they want to stone him? What, what's going on with that odd Old Testament quote? And how is Jesus vindicated in such a way that many people believe in him? Like the crowd hears him, they're like, yeah, that's the guy we're going to follow. I don't know what's going on here. Well, it's rather like those conversations where two of you talk exactly past one another. You have no idea what's going on. Um, we have a pastor named Toby. I have a friend who has a dog named Toby. Now imagine not knowing that we're speaking about the same person. This conversation goes on. Did you hear that Toby's gone blind? No. <laughs> That's horrible. What are you going to do? Well, I think it's time for us to put him down. <laughs> what? Why would you do that? You know, just take him in, burn him up. We'll spread his ashes in the garden. No! Until we have some clarity that we're speaking about different Tobies, we're never going to make head nor tails of such a conversation. And I think the clarity that comes from a passage like this that makes sense of the kind of weird conversation that Jesus has comes, as it very often does, from the Old Testament. And in this case, it is Psalm 82, which is the verse Jesus quotes, that makes sense of everything that's gone on in the passage. So we're going to take a few minutes and look just at Psalm 82 now. We're going to put it on the screen. Actually, we're going to read Psalm 82 um, together, and then I'm going to talk us through it. It's a short psalm, it's only eight verses, so here we go. Let's read this aloud together. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. 
How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So this probably didn't help you very much either, reading this psalm. But it's actually quite clear. And one of the troubles with reading many of these psalms is that there's different speakers and you have to figure out who's speaking. So at some points of this psalm, the psalmist is speaking an introduction and a conclusion. In other parts, he's putting words in God's mouth. God is the voice speaking things to other people. Um, and then there are some, there's some intermediates where we're not totally sure who's speaking. But it helps to understand as we go on. So let me give you the headline. I think this is a psalm about kingship. This is a psalm about the action of kings. And it's a psalm about God's judgment upon kings, very specifically. Um, And one of the key phrases, and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, one of the key phrases is in verse 7, where he says, I said you are gods. And this is the phrase that Jesus quotes from directly. And the key thing you have to have in your head as you go through this is that in the ancient world, this was common language for kings. A son of God was a king on earth. And so the ancients thought of um, son evoking the idea of representation. The son is the representative. He's the regent. He's the... He's the, he, he's the, God's agent on earth is his son, the one invested with authority to enact God's decrees. And so kings are judged and they are considered relative to how well they image God's image God. Are they like God in executing justice or are they unlike God? And so with that in mind, let's go back to this first verse, um, Psalm 82.1, which is a kind of preamble. Um, I have a slightly different translation, which makes this more explicit. Uh, God takes his stand in his own congregation. He's got this council. He judges in the midst of the rulers. The image here is of God uh, having a place seated among the kings of the earth. All right, Kings of Babylon, uh, kings of Persia, uh, kings of Israel, kings of Egypt. They're all kind of gathered together, and he's in a council with them, and he's going to pass judgment on these who are his images, his representatives on earth, those who have been tasked to do God's work on earth. And then he gives his accusation, verses 2 through 4. And the accusation begins, verse 2, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? This is the first accusation brought against kings. In other words, it says that you are doing the exact opposite of this. You are showing partiality to people. You are favoring the rich. You're giving justice to people you like and not to people who need it. You're showing partiality to the wicked. You're favoring people who are bad people. You are not doing a good job of being king. And I think it's fair to say that corrupt judgments in this capacity are a hallmark of false kings. To the degree that you are an image bearer of God who is justice on the earth, you are failing as that image bearer on the earth. That's God's accusation. So we have God speaking, probably verse two, how long will you judge unjustly? God's passing judgment. Verse three and four, he gives a charge to them. What kind of king should you be? He says, vindicate the weak and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and destitute, rescue the weak and needy, deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. Now we get this job description. This is what the good king does. Right ruling means care for the weak. Right ruling means that when you have been invested with power, you use that power to defend the powerless. This is what God expects of his rulers. 
You use power to defend, to bless, to bind. It is to be, if you will, a good shepherd, the stuff we talked about last week together. I'm not going to read this now, but if you'd like other references, to this, other references to this, Psalm 72 is a psalm of Solomon, and it describes what kind of king he's supposed to be. One of my favorite verses in that psalm is verse 14. It says that the blood of these weak ones will be precious in the sight of the king. Now, the king's view, although he has power, wealth, majesty, he considers the weak from his position of power. That's what a good king does. It's a great psalm. I encourage you to read it on your own later. Verse 5 moves us on. Now here, we don't know quite who's speaking here. Either the psalmist is speaking or God is speaking, continuing his accusation. It doesn't actually matter in the end. But he begins by saying, they do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Now, my take is, if the psalmist is speaking, he's describing the people under these kings. In other words, because you are a bad judge, now the people wander about in darkness. They're the ones who are confused. They don't have understanding. The foundations of the earth are shaken. Because you're doing a bad job ruling, it's making a muck of all of those people's lives. That's one way to go. Or we're continuing God's accusation, and this is another statement about the leaders. The leaders themselves are wandering about in darkness. They don't understand. They're blind. They can't see. And now they're not making proper judgments because of this. And the foundations of the earth are shaken because the blind are leading the blind. Sounds a bit like other passages in the Bible. So I don't think we have to make a choice between who's speaking in this verse. It's probably some form of both of them. And now God, um, in verse 6 and 7, passes judgment. He says, I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like mere men and fall like any one of the princes. So although you've been invested with this son of God authority, you're my king, my regent, my agent on earth, because you have misused that authority, you die. You don't get to keep this position. And this is God's judgment upon kings who do these things wrong. Now, this is a little theologically confusing, but the language son of God, I said, means king, which means that in the New Testament, when you read the language son of God, it means king. So when Jesus talks about being son of God, it means he is God's king on earth, his image, his representative, his regent. Um, and this, um, if that bends your noodle at all, you can talk to Jim later. Okay. Yeah, I got you. Um, verse, uh, verse 8 closes out the psalm, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So verses 1 and 8 are kind of bookends. So this is a psalm, as I said, about kingship. It's about good leadership and bad leadership. It's about making right judgments with regard to kings, and it's about God's perspective as the judge of all such kings. So this brings us back to John chapter 10. Why does Jesus quote from this psalm in his dialogue with the Pharisees? And I think now we can begin to decode some of the pieces going on. So chapter 10, verse 22, John tells us explicitly that at that time it was the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication. Well, what's the Feast of Dedication? If you look in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, you won't find a Feast of Dedication. You'll find tabernacles, and you'll find uh, the Feast of Weeks, and you'll find other of these feasts. You won't find Dedication, and that's because it comes from a book called Maccabees. And this is what we commonly call Hanukkah. So John chapter 10, Jesus went to Jerusalem during Hanukkah, which is kind of funny. Um, Hanukkah, if you didn't know, is called Rededication because it was the celebration of a re-sanctification of the temple after it had been desecrated by a really bad guy. So this guy named, this is great, this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes didn't like the Jews, uh, decided to do some things to get rid of the Jews, and so he desecrated the temple, and then he, he, he caused a pig to be sacrificed on the high altar. 
of the Jews. Now, if you know think about Jews and pigs, this was bad. And nobody liked him. In fact, they hated him so much that it started a revolt. And one of the guys in the revolt was a guy named Judah Hamakabeh. His name meant the hammer. Judah the hammer. Isn't that great? That feels like a Marvel movie waiting to happen. Please don't Marvel. I'm so tired of Marvel. Anyway, okay, so um, sounds like it's waiting to happen. He and the Maccabees overthrow Antiochus Epiphanes. And they cleanse Jerusalem, and they rededicate the temple, and they light these lamps for eight days, which is why you have the menorahs with, with the lanterns lit during Hanukkah. And so, if this is in the background of John chapter 10, it is the rededication of the temple, but in the Jews' minds, they're thinking about kingship. They're thinking about overthrow. They're thinking, who's the guy who's going to kick some Roman butts? And that's what they're looking for. And so this begins to frame the question we hear. Jews have kingship on the brain at the Feast of Dedication. Kingship begins to make sense of the Jews' question in verse 24. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, Christ, if you know, is a title. It means Messiah, it means anointed one, and it comes to mean king. They're looking for a king. But context tells us what kind of king they're looking for. They're looking for something a little different than what Jesus has done. And so throughout John, Jesus has performed miracles. He's done signs and wonders, but they want violence, war, and overthrow. They don't want the healing of the blind. They want access to Roman heads. And Jesus is not performing the kinds of signs they want. And I think this is actually critical key to the heart of this passage. The Jews in Jerusalem refuse to accept the evidence that Jesus has given them because it's not the evidence they want or like. I'll say that again. The Jews in Jerusalem have refused to accept the evidence Jesus has given them because it's not what they want and it's not what they like. This is pretty key. Jesus gives a response in verses 25 through 30. I'm not going to read the whole passage again, but he says effectively, I've made it clear to you. I've made it clear that I am the Christ. And we ask, how? Well, it's Psalm 82 clear. Jesus has made right judgments. Jesus has not shown partiality. Jesus has vindicated the weak. Jesus has delivered the poor. And above all else, in chapter 9, he just released a blind man from darkness. The people wander about in darkness, but not when Jesus is around because he makes them see. It's it's almost on the nose that he says these things. Jesus' actions clearly present him as a just Psalm 82 king. He meets all the criteria, but they're not able to see it. And then he says, I and my father are one. In all likelihood, this is son of God language. I am the image of the father. I speak with the father's voice. I am his perfect representative on earth. This means it's not necessarily a divine claim. There are other places where Jesus makes clear divine claims. This may not be one of them. Rather, it is a claim to speak with God's justice and to voice God's judgment in the world. The consequence of these things is that if Jesus speaks God's judgment as God's king, and he has just condemned the Jews in Jerusalem, he's kind of saying they aren't God's people. If I'm the just king, and I speak with God's just voice, and I just condemned you, that means that you're not God's person. And I think this is one of the reasons that they become enraged and want to stone him. However, they also do it because they're just confused. And verses 31 to 33, it shows that the Jews have misunderstood Jesus. They've misunderstood him completely. Is it willful? I don't know. I don't know that we can make that judgment. They accuse him. You are claiming to be God. No, he's just claimed to be king. And their confusion reveals that they're not his subject. If you were my sheep, you would acknowledge me as king. If you were my sheep, you'd know that I did Psalm 82 stuff. But you're not. 
And the fact that you've misunderstood me proves that you're not my sheep. But they can't even see this. Fundamentally, they misjudge Jesus. Ironically, if they had accepted him, excuse me, if they had accepted him as king, they would have shortly discovered that he is also God. Like if they made the right first judgment, they'd be forced to make the right second judgment. But they made the wrong. Don't worry about the math of that. They're confused. Okay. Now, in verses 34 through 36, we get Jesus' quote of Psalm 82. And this is an apt quote, and it has the power of recontextualizing the entire situation. I said, you are God, sons of the Most High. You're rulers, you're kings. When God speaks to his rulers, he calls them sons of God. And so Jesus makes it clear that we're talking about kingship. And if he's talking about kingship, he's saying that you are the unjust judges. He's saying that under you the people walk about in darkness. He's saying that under you, the poor suffer, but under me, the sick are healed, thousands are fed, and the blind are let out of darkness. By the criteria of Psalm 82, I am the king. It's a very apt quote. When Jesus uses the Old Testament, it's always brilliant. Sometimes we get confused, and then you read a little deeper, and you go, oh, okay, Jesus, you win. It's a nice moment when Jesus wins. So he gives a further response, verses 37 and 38. If I do God's works, believe. If I don't do God's works, don't believe. That's the simplest action of belief you will be asked to perform. And I think Jesus is asking us fundamentally to make a very simple, straightforward judgment. If it's red, call it red. If it's blue, call it blue. If it's a duck, call it a duck. If it's two and two, call it four. And if you meet the Messiah in the flesh, call him my master. There's a justified response to the evidence we've received. And evidence is clearly there. And if fault remains, it's our fault. It's a form of denial, of willful rejection. So that, I think, is John chapter 10. The Jews want one kind of king, and Jesus simply isn't it. And the people who want Jesus, excuse me, the people who want the Jesus kind of king, they follow and believe, as we see in the closing verses. This is the king that we want, and we're going to follow and believe him. It seems to me that a passage like this reveals two different hearts. One heart accepts Jesus as he is. The other heart accepts Jesus only as we want him to be. One heart accepts Jesus as he is. The other heart will only accept him if he meets my standards. And a question, uh, this passage presses a question into us. It's quite simple. Will you accept the king on his terms? Or will you demand your own? So, I'll follow you, Jesus, if. Is there an if that hangs over your following of Jesus? I'll follow you, Jesus, if. um, If I get this good thing. Uh, If you solve this problem for me, Jesus, I'll follow you. Uh, If you heal this um, illness I have, I'll follow you. Um, If I can marry that girl, I'll follow you, Jesus. Uh, If I can get a good grade on this project, I'll follow you. Uh, Jesus, if you'll take care of these memories, I'll follow you. Uh, If you'll take care of my sexuality, Jesus, I'll follow you then. 
Um, solve my problems, Jesus. Make things better for me, Jesus. Do the things I want, Jesus. If you could prove to me that hell isn't real, Jesus, I'll follow you. If you'll prove to me that my family will be saved, I'll follow you. If you'll save the people I love, I'll follow you. There's a lot of ifs that we can hang over a following of Jesus. The alternative is just, I'll follow you, full stop. I'm not going to pretend to understand everything, Jesus. I'll follow you. I'm not going to pretend that I like everything that goes on. I'm not going to pretend that everything's okay. But as Peter says in another place, you alone have the words of life. Where else am I going to go? The math tells me you're the answer. I'm going to stick with you until I have a reason not to stick with you. And actually, I think this is one of the key actions of faith. Faith moves my heart from a disposition of if to a disposition of I don't know. I may come to Jesus and have lots of ifs. If I could just have this answered, if I could just have this figured out, if I could just know these things, and I come to faith and I say, I, I don't know, but I'm here, and I'm believing, and I'm trusting that you do have the answers, Jesus. So, we're going to have a time of prayer. And it's hard to imagine that there are not one more or quite a few of you who have had ifs in your faith. And you've been holding back places because you're waiting for God to do something for you to prove it. And I want to challenge you to bring the if forward and take up an I don't know. To be obedient. To say if you're the master, and I believe you are, I'm going to trust you with this thing that I don't understand. It may not be that, you just may need some prayer. You, just may, you may need some healing, you may need a touch of the Lord, you may need to hear his voice this morning and be restored to the knowledge that he is good, that he loves you, and that he does indeed have the words of eternal life. So let me pray for us, and then let's sing.